0: We are going to be in 1 Peter this morning. I am grateful for God's mercy and his grace. Um, he's just good. And, and even in, in the midst of going through something like this, I'm just daily reminded of, of his goodness and mercy and, and the prayers of his people and the concern and support that the church is, I don't know, just means a lot. So thank you all very much. Um, our passage this morning contains a very famous verse that we hear often that tells Christians to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Uh, like you guys probably have, I've listened to a radio talk show over the years called To Every Man an Answer that, that, that gets its name from this verse. And, and the program is basically, um, you can call in, people call in with whatever Bible question they happen to have on their mind. And within seconds, th- these guys have to find an answer it's kind of terrifying to think about you know but they're good at it they do they generally just you know find a place to go right away in scripture that answers the verse or the question very well and uh, i think i think that's what we think of sometimes when we we think of this verse like you know we need to be ready to do that and that's something that probably terrifies most of us to, to be able to have you know that the church did this one time for to the pastors we had a family camp and uh, we didn't know anything about it, but they came up with this, this really fun idea to play a game called Stump the Pastors. And so we all gather for our evening thing, and they say, go sit down in these chairs in the middle of the, the group, and we're all just going to ask you Bible questions, and you guys are going to give the answers. It's like, well, that sounds, that sounds fun. Terrifying, isn't it? Even as pastors, we're like, you've got to be kidding me right now. We did come up with like reason 110 why we like the idea of having multiple pastors, because it's a whole lot easier when you've got three guys to, to, you know, one of us is probably bound to get something right. And we made it through, uh, it, you know, it went okay, but we did decide not to make that an annual tradition. <laughs> that was the first and last time we played Stump the Pastor. But again, I think that's what many of us think of when, when uh, we, we consider this verse, that that's what's being asked of us. You know, the idea is that there are out there in the world these intellectual ninjas who are going to, you know, spring out of the darkness with a question for us, and, and we're going to be, oh, we, you know, I have to answer this, and I have to answer it in a completely satisfactory way. And see, I do these weird things in my head, so not only that, but I put this pressure on myself, like, okay, I have to answer this, or, you know, if I answer it well, they're going to fall on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? And if I answer it poorly, they're going to walk away and be eternally lost, and that's my fault. That's the kind of pressure, I, you know, that's not really what's happening here, so don't be alarmed if you but that's what I think of, and that's not, that's not what's going on. Um, if you were to be questioned, you know, if somebody were to throw questions out to you, you know, you always hope for the easy questions, right? Like What is your name? what is your quest what is your favorite color that's what I want to be asked but that's not the kind of questions people are going to ask you they're going to ask you know could God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it and you're like I don't know what does that even mean or they'll ask you something like you know who are the Nephilim and where did they come from how did they come about you know it's like don't ask those or they might ask the really really hard questions that, that none of us hope to ever get asked like why does evil and suffering exist or how can a loving God Send people to hell. Have you ever been asked those questions? Those are are great questions. And most Christians, if we're being honest, don't have great answers for some of these. They're not ready to answer questions like that. And so this might not be a verse that you choose to meditate on much because of that. But hopefully I have some good news for you. While I do think that it's very important for a Christian to know why they believe what they believe, we should. If somebody were to say, do you believe in the Trinity? And you said, yes, yes you should be able to tell somebody why you believe that. Do you believe that Jesus was fully man and fully God? Yes. You should have an idea scripturally why you why you believe that. So we we should have that. We should be students of God's word. We should dig in and and you know, hopefully have some thought out answers to be able to defend the faith. But I don't think that's necessarily what Peter has in mind here. It includes that, but but I think maybe it's something simpler, something that every Christian is able to do even a child or a new convert because I think this verse has a lot more to do with people seeing the way we live the way we treat people and how we react to adversity you know that's kind of the idea and then then when they see that they'll be compelled to, to ask us what's up with that why do you live this way what why do you act this way what what's the reason that's the big idea of this verse, So we're going to jump into 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And it says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, so Peter starts out in verse 13 by asking a rhetorical question. Who tries to harm those who are trying to do good things? That's, that's the question. Um, it's rare for somebody to come at you when you're being a good person, right? When was the last time you, you, know, you went someplace and you were walking through the parking lot, you saw somebody behind you, so you opened the door for them to let them go in and they, they kicked you in the shin and called you a jerk? Probably never happened, right? Or if somebody's in traffic and you, you know, you're like, go ahead, you, you can go in. They don't usually honk at you and give you a hand gesture. They usually like that. They're happy when you are a good person. Most people appreciate that and generally speaking, They won't try to harm you uh, when you live according to God's word. But but I want to make sure that we understand that this is a principle and not a promise. Because I think we often see something like this and we try to turn it into a promise. And really it's just a principle. This will generally be the way things happen. So it's kind of like what we read in Proverbs 16, verse 7. It says this, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's a principle. Generally that's true. But we try to take these things and turn them into formulas, kind of like where we, we put God's arm behind his back and say, okay, you know, you have to bless me now. I've d- I followed your rules. I've done what you've asked. So now you're, you're obligated to bless me. Have you ever done that kind of thought that way? You're getting God confused with that the blue genie from Aladdin at that point. That's not, that's not who God is. That's not what he's like. He does things according to his plan and purposes, which sometimes includes suffering. Kind of like when Jesus went to the cross, for example. Okay, if anybody ever had the exclusive rights to God's goodness and only his goodness, it was Jesus, right? He lived a perfect life. And yet, God allowed him to suffer so that he could bring blessings to us. And, and sometimes God's going to allow us to suffer for the same reason, that we might bring blessings to others, that we might glorify his name. We don't know the mind of God or how he works So we know that this is a principle and not a promise also because of of what he's about to say in just a minute here. He's going to say, even though this is normally what you can expect, it won't always be what happens because Peter's going to go on to explain that's the case. Well, next, Peter, what we see here is Peter says that God wants us to to do good. But not only does he want us to, to do good, he wants us to be zealous about it. Okay, zealous for doing what is right. Zealous isn't a word that we use a whole lot. Uh, but it just means eager devotion or intense enthusiasm. So for example, if you are willing to camp outside of a theater for a week to get Star Wars tickets, you're a complete nerd, but you're also zealous for Star Wars, right? Right, Chad? Can I get an amen? Yeah. yeah. If, you're, uh, if you're the kind of person who's willing to chain yourself to a tree Okay, when there's somebody that has an actual chainsaw trying to take that tree down, you are zealous for the environment and maybe a little touched in the head. <laughs> that's what God, that's how God wants us to be towards righteousness. That's how he wants us to be towards wanting to do good. Titus 2.14 says it this way. It says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is really important to him. Jesus saved us and he purified us so that we would be giddy for good works. You know, just excited about doing them. Now, I want to make sure you notice the order of this because it's completely opposite of most religions. With Christianity, Jesus saves us and purifies us, and then good works follow. In every other religion, the good works have to come first in order for him to save us. Big difference. See, that, that becomes their motivation then for doing good. They have to. If you've ever, I mean, there's some people that kind of put us to shame when it comes to zealousness. But it's, again, they're, they're, you know, a Jehovah's Witness that goes door to door. You know, they used to do that. And I used to think, man, these guys are devoted. No, they, they have to do this in order to get something from God. If they don't do this, they won't be saved. Uh, that's kind of the, the idea. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because we get to. It's not a a duty. It's a delight. It's an act of worship and devotion to a loving Father who already did everything for us so that we could be saved and enjoy a relationship with Him. Our Heavenly Father has lavished His love and His provision on us because He wanted to. Not, Not because we deserved it or earned it. So the good works that we do are simply the normal response to, to a, a father who has done these things for us through Christ, for a father that loves us so much. That, that blows people's minds, by the way. It's kind of like you're living this way because you want to as a Christian. This is, you're living this way because you want to, not because you have to. It's the same way I feel about the nerds camping outside of the Star Wars things. Like you're here because you. nobody's forcing you. It's like, are you being held against your will right now? You know, it's like blink twice. if you're. No, they want to do this. Now, I understand that we won't always be zealous for good works. I've been a Christian for a long time, and there have been times when I have been, and there have been times when I haven't done this very well. But I can tell you this, that prior to coming to Christ, I had no desire to follow God's commands or to live in a way that pleased him. And now it matters to me a lot. This is a proof that a person has been born again. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in someone, the desires of our heart begin to change. I remember this happening to me when I became a Christian. Uh, The things that I I love to do, the people that I love to do it with, and and even even like the things that I love to say, all of it changed. All of it, the stuff that I didn't like it anymore, it didn't have the same effect on me as it used to. It actually convicted me now when I did it. And it wasn't because I changed my mind about those things. It's because God changed my mind about those things. The Holy Spirit within me changed something in me to where I didn't didn't want to do those things anymore. I had new desires. I wanted to read my Bible. I never wanted to read my Bible before. Now I wanted to read it. I couldn't wait to get into it, dig into it, see what it said. I wanted to pray. I used to pray a lot, but it was more like the, the stuff where you were laying in somebody's yard, you know, about... You know, to pass out and you know, making promises to God. Those were the kind of prayers that I would throw up. Not, But now I just wanted to talk to God. I wanted to enjoy Him. I wanted to bring my, my worries to Him and, and, and have fellowship with Him. I wanted to be around other Christians. That certainly wasn't the case before I became a believer. I didn't want anything to do with other Christians. They bothered me. I didn't like them. Now I wanted to hang out with them. I wanted to learn about God and I wanted to tell others about Him. When I would read His Word and I would find out something that God liked or something that God didn't like that I was doing, I, I wanted to change. I wanted to live accordingly. That never happened before. And all of this was a result of Christ invading my life. So I want to just point out that if you claim to be a Christian, and none of that's true, that, that's, that's, a, that's a concern. If you read something in God's word that says what you're doing isn't, okay and you just kind of ignore that and think ah, i don't care or, or justify what you're doing so you can keep doing it that's not good and the reason i bring this up is because i just see it a lot i see a lot of people who claim to be christians who are doing things that the bible would say we're not supposed to do and they're they're okay with it and and i know we're not going to be perfect i get that but but this is weird god's word is food for his sheep And if you don't like sheep food, what does that mean? If you have no taste for it, that might mean you're not a sheep. And I say that in a loving way, not in a judgmental way. If something is offensive to God, it should be offensive to us. If something is delightful to God, it should be delightful to us. And I'm always amazed when I when I see this kind of taking place in in the lives of Christians in the church. There's times when you'll come up and preach a sermon and, and you'll just watch the impact that it has on somebody's life. Watching somebody's will fall into line with God's will is such a powerful statement that, that God is real, that God is powerful, that God is present in somebody's life. It, it's, it's weird that well I'll preach a sermon or one of the other guys will preach a sermon and somebody will come up afterwards and say, like, I know what I need to do now. <laughs> and you're like, what are you talking about? And they'll talk about, like, I need to end this relationship, you know, that's, that's not honoring to God, or I need to stop doing this, or I need to. I mean, it, it, it happens all the time. And it's not because we're just preaching wonderful sermons. It's because the Holy Spirit is doing the work that the Holy Spirit does through his word. Sometimes it's just radical stuff. It's amazing. So let's just talk for a second about the good that, that Peter has in mind, that he wants us to be zealous about. Um, Peter's just spent quite a bit of time in the previous verses laying out what some of these things are that God expects from those who are his own. So, so let's recap. He wants us to be good, law-abiding citizens. He wants us to be respectful to authority. He wants us to be excellent employees. He wants us to accept our roles in marriage and to work hard at being a good husband and a good wife and to, to keep our marriages together. He wants us to be characterized by love kindness, humility, peacefulness, and to live distinctively holy in this world. He actually ends the previous section with with a quote from Psalm 34 where it just gives us more practical ways to accomplish this where it says in verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, let him seek peace and pursue it. That's a pretty good start on the road to doing good right there, isn't it? Control your tongue Tell the truth, do good for others, pursue peace. He wants us, as his children, to live standout lives in this world. Standout lives that reflect that he is our father. That makes sense, right? That's how Jesus lived. Jesus, his only son, constantly lived in a way that reflected the father perfectly. And he wants us to to live that way too. Because people who live this way are going to stand out like sore thumbs in this world. And and it's probably going to pique the curiosity of anyone who sees it. They're going to see somebody living differently and want to think, why? What's up with that? When the watching world sees us being obedient to Christ and his word, when they see us willing to put ourselves second, when everybody else is trying to put themselves first, they're going to wonder why. Now, when when you live this way and when you do this, Peter says you can normally expect a relatively peaceful existence and a good life. Um, So, that's incentive to do good right there. You you get to please God. You generally will be kept from harm. And it attracts people to God. All of that sounds great until you get to verse 14 and you see the word but. (laughs) But, uh uh-oh, most people will be fans when they see us doing what God wants us to do. But some won't. Some people won't like it at all. It's kind of weird to think about that, isn't it? Like people would not be fans of somebody who's just living in a good and upright way around them. It seems like that's what everybody would want. But, but we see it today like people wanting to put a stop to that. It's kind of, kind of strange. Why would they be against this? Why would they want to put a stop to that? Well, I, I thought of a few reasons. Maybe it's because it convicts them of their own sin. I remember when I became a Christian and I, I stopped drinking and all my friends were like... It bothered them. like why? It's like, don't worry about that. You know, that would, well, but it bothers me. You're not doing it, and now I feel funny if I do it. And it's like, well, good. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't do it. Uh, maybe it's because they, they think that, like, we think we're better than them. And so they just want to, you know, pull us off our high horse. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's simply because they hate God, and, and they hate everything that has to do with him. But, but more likely, what it is, is that they're afraid that if, if they let righteousness prevail... If they let that kind of thing just win the day, that it's probably going to put a stop to the sin that they love. And they don't want that. They want to keep doing the things they want to do, and they don't want anybody getting in their way of it. So, so in, again, Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. I love that the Bible is honest about things. This is another proof that it's God's word and not man's word. If it were man's word, you would never tell people that being a Christian might mean that you'd have to suffer. You would just leave that out. You don't put that on the promotional material, right? Hey, become a Christian. You might have to suffer. Man would never say that. The Bible's honest. It says, yeah, that might happen. We may have to suffer for living the way that God wants us to, but it tells us that even if that happens, we will be blessed. You've all heard the old saying, I'll clean it up for Sunday morning, but darned if you do, darned if you don't. Well, for the Christian, it's the opposite of that. It's blessed if you do, blessed if you don't. We receive the blessings that come from living right, and we receive God's blessing when we suffer for his name. Either way, God says you'll be blessed. And blessed here doesn't mean... Happy or healthy or wealthy, it means highly favored by God. And that matters so much more to me than those other things. To know that God just looks at me as a son and says, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased with you. That's a huge blessing. Blessing like this describes a spiritual state of well being and a joy filled contentment that cannot be taken away from us because it's wrapped up in Christ and He can't be taken away from us. So, in that sense, we really I never thought I would say this, but in that sense, we really are too blessed to be stressed. <laughs> they make these cups and shirts that say that, and I always think, oh, come on, don't do that. It's embarrassing, but, but that's what this is saying. You'll be too blessed to be stressed, and that's what Peter kind of says. He says, because of this truth, you can say with confidence, he can say with confidence, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. People are fearful about everything all the time and troubled all the time, and Peter's saying we don't need to. No matter what they do, they can't undo what God has done for you. They can't take away your blessing or your hope. They can't really harm you in any way. That's kind of cool. Imagine what this would be like if we actually believed this. That nobody could touch you, nobody can harm you. You remember Neo and the Matrix? This is now, and that's not being that's not the same as Star Wars, so this isn't nerdy. This is cool. Uh, when he finally realized that, that they, th- these guys were powerless against him, that there was, they couldn't, like, he, he, just, he put one hand behind his back and just starts kind of like, like he's just daydreaming while he's just blocking all their punches. That's what we would be like if we believed this. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't let them rule over your life. Don't give them that power. That's what fear does. It allows someone or something to take control and reign over you. And that's where Jesus is supposed to be. That's what he's supposed to do. So that's why it says instead, honor Christ as Lord. He's Lord. He's the one with the power. He's the one you need to be concerned with. Him, not them. Honor Jesus as the one who is in control and who is reigning over your life. There's a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer that once said this, Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God, and those who fear God have no more fear of men. And he knew what he was talking about because he lived at a time when a guy named Hitler was in power. And he saw what was going on in Germany and he opposed it verbally and actively, physically. He he helped Jews get out and, and to safety. And he did it because he wasn't afraid of men. These were bad men who were doing very bad things to people. And he's like, what, is it, you know? Oh, it's just you? He didn't care. He was worried about pleasing Christ. He was worried about doing what what God wanted, more than his own safety. And I like think about what this says to those who are trying to harm you. It's probably infuriating to them. It's like they want to they want to like, you know, intimidate us and, you know, make us bow to their will. And we're like, No, not gonna do that. I love what it says this in Philippians chapter one and verse twenty eight. It says that when we are not frightened by our opponents, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction and of our salvation. That's pretty funny. That's just a bonus, by the way. You know, don't, don't do it for that reason, but, but that's what it tells them. It's like, I am not. I know where you're going. I know where I'm going. You don't scare me. I ain't afraid of you. That's what we can say to them. There's a whole other level of conviction when someone's willing to suffer for what they believe in. It gives credence to how real it all is. So that brings us to the famous statement found in verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The implication is that we should expect people to come up and want to know the answer when they see our unwavering devotion to Jesus and the way that we're living, especially in the midst of suffering. When they see that, they're going to want to know why. Why aren't you giving up? Why aren't you, you know, wh- why do you want to live this way? Why do you live this way when it causes you harm? Why don't you just abandon your faith? Why don't you walk away from this? That's what they, that's what they would want to ask. Why aren't you crushed by the things that crush other people? They'll also want to know why we insist on living according to God's word instead of doing what everybody else does. In chapter 4, it says that they will actually be stumped when we don't join in with them in what they do. Like, why won't you jump into the pool of depravity with me? You know, come on in, the water's fine. Why don't you want to get in? It's like, because I don't. It's gross. You're in a cesspool. You know, and that's, that's the answer we would get back. I don't want to do that because it wouldn't honor God. Why won't you live together before getting married? Because it wouldn't please my Savior. And I want to please my Savior. Why are you staying married to such a difficult person? Why are you staying in an unhappy marriage? Well, because marriage is a picture of the gospel that saved me. Jesus sticks with me when he has every reason to divorce me. So I'm going to do what he did. I'm going to stick with that person through thick and thin. Why are you going through with an inconvenient pregnancy? That's one that you'll hear. Because all life is precious to God and I trust him. Why don't you get drunk or high anymore? Because God has asked me to be sober-minded and self-controlled and to be ready for his return. I can't do both of those things at the same time. Why do you waste your Sundays by going to church? It's part of your great weekend. Why? It's like, I can't think of any place I'd rather be than with God's people praising my God's name. You know, they think we're missing out on the good life, but that's not the good life. I tried all of that and it didn't It didn't satisfy my thirst. It was like filling my mouth with dirt. It only led me to despair. Knowing Jesus is what has changed all of that. He's my hope. He's the one that rescued me from darkness and and brought me into his glorious light. So doing the things that please him and bring him honor are a pleasure for me to do. It blesses me to do it because he's done infinitely more for me. He died so that i could have life and now he calls me to die to self so that he can be exalted in me and and that's better than anything that the world has to offer when christ uses you in that way paul figured it out and this is the way he put it in philippians 3 verse 7 whatever gain i had i count as loss for the sake of christ indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's that's better. All that other stuff is trash. I don't want that. When you compare it next to Christ, there's no comparison. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Think about that. There's nothing worth more than that. And I have that. Why would I want this other stuff? It 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 doesn't matter to me. If I have Jesus, I have everything. So, When someone asks you the reason for the hope that you have, the answer is Jesus. It's because of what he did for us on the cross and what he has in store for us in the future. But notice that this verse has two important descriptions. It says, always and prepared. The idea is that you need to be ready in season and out of season. Always be ready and be prepared to, to give this answer. Verse 15 goes on to tell us the attitude that we're supposed to do it with. Because the truth is, when you live contrary to the way everybody else is living, and you tell people that they need Jesus, they're, they're going to kind of probably um, not like it much. And they may, they're going to come at us in a certain way. And so it tells us that we're supposed to answer with gentleness and respect. It's not something all of us are good at. Because if somebody comes at me with hostility, guess what I want to come back to them with? The same. But do you think that's going to be helpful in drawing them to Jesus? <laughs> no. So gentleness and respect. These have become kind of rare commodities in our day. If you can show somebody that, hey, I don't agree with you, but I can still show you kindness and respect, that's going to be weird to them. Like, what? You can do that? Yeah, I can. It says that when they see us treat them well after slandering us and abusing us, that they will be put to shame. Now, that's I'm a sick person, so that's kind of an added bonus to me. It's like, oh, so if I answer respectfully and gently. That'll actually kind of put them to shame. It's like, yes, I get a heap burning coals on their head. That shouldn't be the motivation, but it's like, sweet, you know, another incentive to do what Christ wants me to do. You know, there can also be a tendency for Christians who are living righteously to become prideful and arrogant about it. And, and that comes out in our response. There is never any place for pride and arrogance in, in, in a Christian, because if you have righteousness, guess where it came from? <laughs> Not you. Not you came from Jesus so the idea of a self-righteous Christian just it's like an oxymoron it doesn't make sense when we stand up for what we believe in and do it with gentleness and respect it says that we will enjoy a good conscience uh, there have been times in my life where I've had a clear conscience and there have been times in my life where I've had a guilty conscience guess which one I like better <laughs> clear conscience is nice I couldn't help but think about the guy who wrote this letter while going through this section Uh, Peter knew about these things firsthand, didn't he? He knew what it was like to have a clear conscience, and he knew what it was like to hang his head in shame. He knew what it was like to deny Jesus, to try to save his own skin, and then go and weep bitterly because of it. And he knew what it was like to boldly give a defense and suffer for it. And he's telling us which one is better. I'd rather do that any day than what I did over here. Verse 17, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I believe that we are living in a time when Christians have plenty of opportunities for for what we're talking about today to play out. Uh, What a time to be a Christian. I know that most people are freaking out about the way the world is right now and, and the way things are going, but I'm thinking, wow, I finally have an opportunity to live this verse out. Because before... We didn't look a whole lot different now christians are kind of marked almost we we're gonna we're gonna have an opportunity to to look very different and and that's going to give that opportunity that we are hoping to have to draw people to jesus there's an old quote that i normally don't like very much because it it often um i think it people use it to have an excuse to get out of preaching the gospel it's like oh cool i don't have to ever tell anybody i don't actually have to say anything i just just get a you know and you, you might know the quote i usually don't like it but it fits very well with this so be sure the gospel has to include words. If you're going to share the gospel with somebody, you have to actually use words. But this is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and it goes like this. Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. And that's, that's what this is talking about. The way we live, the way we act, the way we treat people, the way we love God, the way we follow his word, all of these things are going to say something to people. So we have two opportunities here. As Christians right now, when we live selfless, stand out lives in the way that we love God and and do good, people will see this and they're going to be prone to ask, what's up with that? And the other opportunity we're going to have is that when we're mocked and maligned and slandered and reviled by people because of the way we live, because we say we're followers of Christ, and then when that happens but we're not crushed by it, we're not troubled, we're not fearful, we don't cower to them, they're going to look at that, you know, and go, "You're you're cheerful right now. You're hopeful. You have faith. What's up with that?" They'll want to know. In both instances, we get the opportunity, even the privilege, to tell them the reason for the hope that we have. We get to point people to Jesus. So, if you've ever read that verse and thought, "Uh-oh, I don't I don't want anything to do with having to always be ready to give an answer," hopefully, this is a little less daunting now. Um, and you realize this is something that you can do. So here, here we go. Do you have hope? Yes? Do you know the reason for your hope? Yeah. Are you able to tell somebody that reason when they ask? Well, congratulations. <laughs> you, you're prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have. That was pretty easy, right? You know, the, the reason for the hope we have is, is why we take communion, why we remember Jesus. This is a picture of Christ for us, his body for us and his blood for us so that we could have life. He went through what you should have gone through to secure relationship with you, to forgive you for your sins. And what we do as believers or as, as, as people is we believe in this. We trust in what he's done for us. And that's why we celebrate communion. It's a way to remember what he's done and to celebrate what he's done. And so it's a beautiful time of worship. I'm going to thank God right now for the, the bread and the cup. And then we're going to enjoy communion. Father, we thank you so much that um, you have been so good to us. Thank you for making us your children. Uh, Help us to to reflect you, Lord, in this world and to do a good job of it. We know we won't always get this right, but what a privilege it is for us to be able to to be like Jesus just a little bit in in the way that he lived and the way he walked in this world so that people will will look at us and, and wonder why. And Lord, give us opportunities even this week to share the reason for the hope that we have. And we thank you, Father, that that hope is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ who he is, and what he's done. And right now we get to celebrate that by remembering his broken body and his shed blood on our behalf. And so please, Lord, accept our worship and be pleased with this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.